Oh, if you didn't know, November is officially invite a friend who doesn't come to church month. And December will be officially invite your friend to church who doesn't come to church month. And January will be... So I'll be thinking about that. People are sometimes a little more open, a little more sensitive to spiritual things during this time of year. Take advantage of it. They already go to a good church. Leave them there. Okay? Leave them there. But invite people who don't know Jesus Christ or who are far away or maybe just moved into the area and they're looking for a good church and hopefully you would acknowledge that this is such that type of place so you would bring them with you. All right. We are in Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12, we're looking at verses 13 through 17 this morning, just moving through the Gospel of Mark, page 848 if you're using one of those blue church Bibles. Who likes the cold weather? I love it. I'm with you, man. I am with you. It's about time. Of course, next week it'll probably be 100 again, but uh, living in California... But I love it. It reminds me, just gets me ready for Christmas and Thanksgiving and fireplaces and all that good stuff. But that has nothing to do with my message this morning. By a show of hands, how many of you absolutely love paying taxes? I didn't expect that at all. I, did. I actually had two hands go up. That's interesting. Because in my notes it says, no one. Well, you are not alone. <laughs> Except for you too. Okay. I would imagine most of us do not like paying taxes. Anything? Anything? Amen? Yes? No? It's okay. I'm not going to trap. This is not a trap. Well, it kind of is. No, it's not. It's not a trap. I don't like paying taxes either. Government-instituted taxation is one of the most controversial and divisive topics you can discuss. Right? Just start to have a conversation about this issue. People can and are very passionate about this subject. And extremely intolerant sometimes of opinions or policies about this subject that are contrary to their idea of what government taxation should be or should look like. In fact, beloved, political movements or groups have risen all throughout history whose primary goal has been a strong opposition to taxation. And as is happening now and happens almost every time during this Election period, the presidential candidates, if you've watched any of them, are presenting their own plans for taxing the American people. And no doubt they will explain why the current system and the other candidates' tax plans are unjust, ineffective, foolish, corrupt, evil, unlawful, etc., etc., etc. And they will tell you how their plan will bring peace and prosperity to our great union. Right. So it's the same thing. It's a cycle. If you've been around a while, you're old enough, you've seen it over and over and over again. Taxation is such a serious topic that I thought before we get into the message, a little humor might be good to lighten us up. We shouldn't be so serious, okay? We know Jesus Christ. Assuming. Assuming we know Jesus Christ. I'm good. You can tax me to the hill. You can take it all, but you haven't taken anything. Not really. So for us, we can have a little humor with this uh, approach of taxation. Now, if this world is all you got, well, then I understand how taxation could really drive you to the depths of despair. Because they're taking your stuff, man. They're taking your joy. They can't take my joy. So, just for fun, Maybe you'll enjoy these. These are one-liners I found about taxation. Steve, you'll like these. A fool and his money are soon parted. The rest of us wait until income tax time. President Herbert Hoover was the first president to give his salary back to the government. Now the government would like everybody to do it. Making out your own income tax return is something like a do-it-yourself mugging. I like that one. Jason, this is for you. Actually, it's for Alyssa. A harp is a piano after taxes. It'll take a while for you guys to get that, maybe, if you can picture a harp. The only thing left is strings, guys. Everything else is gone. The best things in life are still free, but the tax experts are working overtime on the problem. 
So, government taxation, by the way, and opposition to it by the people is not, it's not a recent phenomenon. It's not just in our culture that we've experienced this. And in fact, it was a very sensitive issue to the Jewish people over 2,000 years ago. And that introduces us to the text before us today. Look, look at your Bibles. Mark chapter 12, verse 13 through 17. And it says, beginning in verse 13, And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion. For you are not swayed by appearances but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? Verse 15. But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one and he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. So, simple text. And in fact, this lesson is a little heavy on the teaching side, a little less on the preaching side. We'll save that for a few moments at the very end. But there's a lot here that I need to inform you about in case you don't know that will make this text come alive. It's the background, the culture, the context, the historical setting. And we're going to spend a lot of time on the front end talking about that. So stay with me, because once you understand that, then the text becomes much more meaningful to you. So we're going to consider our obligations to government and to God so that we might understand and fulfill our duties. That's where we're going this morning. That's the outline at the top there on the inside, that's what it says. Two points, render to government, render to God. Very simple. Render to government, render to God. So, before we do that, let's look at the historical context. What was going on in history? The major ruling empire during the time of Jesus was the Roman Empire. When Jesus was still a child, there was a tax. It was called a census. That is a Latin word. It comes from Rome. It was instituted by the Roman emperor in some regions of Palestine. Palestine is the area that Jesus was ministering to the people. It is where Israel is located. This tax was an annual tax that was levied against the people living in the region of Judea, Idumea to the south, and Samaria to the north. So Judea is where Jerusalem is located, Idumea is down here, and Samaria is to the north. So this whole section, this whole region, this tax has now been levied against the people there. Now before this tax was instituted, the territory was governed by one of the sons of Herod, Herod the Great. His name was Archelaus. And he was allowed to govern that territory under the permission of Rome because Rome had conquered, among other areas, Palestine. It was under their control. Archelaus acted as a client king. What is that? It means that he was a non-Roman ruler who was allowed to govern the areas assigned to him with some level of independence. And he did not have to pay taxes directly to Rome. Okay, So Rome said, here you go, Archelaus, you take care of the area, deal with it, just make sure there's no problems. Now, client kings were expected to provide military manpower to Rome if they were called on, and they wanted them to keep peace in their territories. Okay, very important to Rome. They wanted them to maintain and keep the peace in their area. But they were free, to some degree, to do what they wanted to do, to rule. Now, additionally, the client kings could call upon Rome and their great empire for help militarily if they were attacked by invading enemies. So there was a mutually beneficial relationships. The client king was not considered, though, equal with a Roman ruler, an official Roman ruler or representative. But as I said, there was a mutually beneficial relationship between the empire and the client king. 
In AD 6, this is when Jesus was a young child, Rome removed Herod Archelaus for some poor decisions that he made. They took him out of power. And they took those three regions, Idumea, Judea, Samaria, and they turned them into one Roman province. What's a province? All it means is it's an official division of the Roman Empire or a government. So they've recognized this now as one Roman province. And they put in place of the client king their own Roman officials to govern and watch over the territory. So, in AD 6, direct Roman rule replaced the client king for that area of Palestine. And at the time, because they did that, they instituted this tax called the census. This tax was collected from the people and sent directly to the Roman treasury. So in other words, it was not for the benefit of the people in the land necessarily. It was to fatten the coffers or the treasury of Rome. Needless to say, the Jewish people who were under their domination were not happy about the tax. They're just like us. They were frustrated and in fact, they revolted. And that revolt is recorded in Acts chapter 5, verse 37. You can write that down, look at it later. But guess what? Rome was a powerful ruler and their rebellion was unsuccessful. The people perished. So after many years now, Jesus is an adult. He's been ministering in the area. But this tax is still a sore spot among the Jewish people. But they reluctantly went ahead and paid it every year. Now the annual tax, by the way, was one denarius. One denarius, which is equal to one day's wage for a labor. So the issue was not so much the amount of the tax. This tax wasn't, by the way, this wasn't the only tax, but this was an additional tax. But this tax wasn't breaking the people. It wasn't sending them to the poorhouse. That wasn't the issue so much. It was the fact that this tax amounted to, as far as they were concerned, a reminder that they were under foreign domination or control. That's what it represented. Foreign domination and control. Also remember that the Jewish people had been longing for the coming of the Messiah that had been promised to them in the Old Testament. Why? Because they believed, besides other things, that this Messiah would come and He would restore their land to them which was currently occupied and controlled by the Roman Empire. And they would receive back as a nation their privileged position and would become what they used to be, an exalted nation among the nations. And consequently, they would come out from under the control that they absolutely despised of the Roman Empire. So all of that's going on. They hate this tax. They don't like the fact that they're under the domination of Rome, and they are looking and talking about the Messiah, thinking about the Messiah, who they believe will resolve all of those issues for them. All right, well, that's historical context. What about the context surrounding Jesus, specifically during this time period? Remember, and we've said this before, this was the last week of Jesus' life. With very few exceptions, the religious leaders of Israel were hostile to Jesus. They hated Him. Why? Because He continued to expose their hypocrisy. And we've seen that as we've moved through the Gospel of Mark. And they had reached a point where they would do anything to get rid of this Jesus. Because not only did He continue to challenge their authority... But the people that had long respected the religious leaders were growing fonder and fonder of Jesus every day. And that meant that they could eventually lose their influence and power among the general population. That's what they were worried about. Additionally, the hopes of this messianic deliverance that I was talking to you about that the people would have been thinking about Deliverance from Rome by Jesus could have led to the Jews gathering together 
creating an uprising and forming a rebellion against the nation of Rome. In other words, hey, if this Jesus is the Messiah, let's gather the boys together and let's storm the empire. Well, the religious leaders would certainly have been lumped together with all the other Jews in that process. And they had seen before what Rome does to rebels. So they had, they had, they wanted nothing to do with such things. And they were getting nervous. If this Jesus keeps going the way he's going, we're going to be in trouble. Because these guys are going to rebel against the empire and the empire is going to come and crush us to the ground. Because they are mighty. They are warriors. And they were. In fact, Rome had a motto. It was Pax Romano. Pax Romano. Which simply means Roman peace. This was a core value. Now you and I think peace, like happiness and everyone's getting along. Okay, they kind of thought that way. I wouldn't necessarily say happiness. But peace for them was, let me just read this to you. And uh, maybe it will help you understand. Romans regarded peace not as the absence of war, but the rare situation that existed when all opponents had been beaten down and lost the ability to resist. Augustus, one of the Caesars, challenge was to persuade Romans that the prosperity they could achieve in the abundance of warfare, or in the absence of warfare, sorry, was better for the empire than the potential wealth and honor acquired when fighting a risky war. In other words, listen guys, we want peace, period. And that is one of the reasons all of the roads were put in by the Romans. It allowed them to move their troops from one territory to another very quickly so they could stamp out any rise or rebellion against the empire. And they ruled with an iron fist. And they did, to a great degree, maintain peace. And they saw that that was a benefit to the expansion and the existence and the ongoing health and wealth of their empire. In fact, this whole idea that I was just talking to you about, about the religious leaders being concerned about what could happen if this Jesus got out of control and a lot of people started following him and that turned into a rebellion, is actually noted in John chapter 11, verse 45 through 48. At least it is referenced or implied. I'll just read you the text. You don't have to turn there or you can look up on the screen. It says, Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, this is a reference to Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead, it says they believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees, the religious leaders, and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council, all of the religious group, the Sanhedrin, and said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. And if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. That's What's going on? Now, last week in Mark chapter 11, verses 27 through chapter 12, verse 12, we saw that the religious leaders attempted to question and challenge the authority that Jesus exercised in the temple when he turned over tables, kicked people out, and basically established himself as the authority within God's house. But if you remember from last week, it did not go well for them when they did that. Jesus carefully outmaneuvered them with his own question and masterfully exposed their evil and foolish rejection of him with a simple parable, a story. And we looked at that in detail last week. So their anger and desire to see him disappear was only elevated after this occurrence. They were mad, beloved. Now, Luke does a very good job describing their sinful response to Jesus' actions. We looked at Mark, but Luke also records the event. And he records what happened after Jesus finished telling the parable that we looked at last week. Luke chapter 20, verse 19. It says, The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them, but they feared the people. Stop right there. They feared the people because the people were favoring Jesus. So they knew that if they just took Jesus by the scruff of his neck and began to toss him around, that the people would want to say something about that. They would not be cool with that. 
So it says in verse 20, they watched him, Jesus, and sent spies who pretended to be sincere that they might catch him in something he said so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. So this, beloved, is the immediate context of the passage we just read in Mark chapter 12, verses 13 through 17, the text that we are examining and looking at today. They are coming to Jesus with their questions in hopes that they will catch Him in something that they can somehow use against Him to discredit Him with the people and or even better, get Him arrested by the Roman authorities. That's the context. Now, let's look back at this text. Mark chapter 12, verse 13. It says, and they, the religious leaders, the ones that Jesus keeps shaming publicly and openly, they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. That's why they're there, to trap him in his talk. Now, I want to remind you that the last time we are told about the Pharisees and the Herodians getting together, is in Mark's Gospel. It was after, if you don't remember or haven't read it before, it was after Jesus had healed a man on the Sabbath. And the religious leaders thought wrongly that Jesus had violated the law by doing that, regarding the law of the Sabbath. So the text in Mark chapter 3, verse 6, says that the Pharisees immediately found the Herodians and discussed with them how to destroy Jesus. That's all the way back in Mark chapter 3, verse 6. That's the last time we hear about this combination, these two groups together. So we know what they're about. They want to do Jesus under. Now I'm going to remind you, it's important, because we talked about this when we were in Mark chapter 3, verse 6, but it's important just to, to remember again. The Pharisees hated the Herodians. They were not friends. But they teamed up with them to destroy Jesus. Well, why? Why would they do that? Why would they sacrifice that? Well, the Herodians were going to be, in their minds, helpful to doing Jesus under. They were a Jewish political party that was generally sympathetic to Rome and the Roman Empire because they personally benefited as political supporters of Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas was the ruler or client king of another area in Palestine called Galilee and also Perea. Antipas had a very dependent and beneficial relationship with the empire of Rome. In other words, they had a good thing going and the Herodians supported this Herod. That's where they get their name from, Herodians. They supported the family of Herod who ruled as client kings. And they liked what they had going back and forth between Rome and the client kings. So consequently, they were opposed to any person or movement that might inspire the people to disobey or rise up against Rome, the empire. Because that could create a mess for them, change their relationship. So the Pharisees, they're wise. Let's bring the Herodians along. Let's, in fact, invite them to see if we can trap Jesus, get him to say something against the Roman Empire. They'll tell the Roman Empire and they will have him arrested. So here you go. You have the Pharisees. They represent basically the good majority of the Jewish population. They despise paying this tax. And by the way, this tax is being paid not just to a foreign oppressor, but an idolatrous foreign oppressor. In other words, Rome was very religious. They worshipped all kinds of gods. Just not the God of Israel. Just not the God of the Old Testament. And then you have the other party, the Herodians, who are politically connected to Rome through Herod. And again, as I said, certainly would want to suppress any disloyalty to the Roman Empire for fear that they might or that might impact their way of life as Rome came in and crushed the rebellion. So, that brings us to Mark chapter 12, verse 14. Look back at the text. 
Knowing all that now, beloved, when you read this, you should read it much differently. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion. For you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. You, know, you realize who's saying this? Let me ask you a question, Jesus, now that I've said all that. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? This whole thing's a setup. They butter Jesus up, pretending to be his supporters and desiring to hear his answer, but they are really hoping to trap him because a yes or no answer, either way, pay them or not pay them, will either put him in a very bad position with the Jewish people or in a very bad position with the Roman government. How do you get out of this? If he answers yes, he loses credibility with the majority of the Jewish population who saw this tax as a hurtful reminder of their foreign domination. And beloved, in a real sense, an undesirable admission when they surrendered to the tax of their submission to Rome. You've got to understand that. They're paying this tax and in a sense, they are submitting to a government that is pagan, against the God of Israel, worships idols, and they're submitting themselves to that government. See, the tax was not for using a road, or for buying something, or for even making a profit. It was a tax simply for existing. It was a tax put against the people just because you were alive and in the Roman Empire. And because of that, these people were all now being forced to pay this tribute to Rome. It's as if Rome owned them. That's what the tax is saying. We own you. But they saw themselves as belonging to God. These are the Jewish people. They were His people. They were His nation. So how in the world can it be lawful for us to make this payment to Rome? These idolaters don't own us. God does. So how in the world could it be right to submit to them in this way? That is the issue. That's what's at stake. This is not just a simple question. Pay them or don't pay them. There's a lot behind it. On the other hand, beloved, if he says, listen... Don't pay that tax. Filthy, vile government. How dare they tax you? Then he certainly would have gained the favor of the people, right? I mean, they would have made posters of him and this is the man that undoes our taxes, right? I mean, he would have been a star. But the empire would have heard of it. The Herodians were there. And they would have viewed his talk as the talk of an insurrectionist a rebellion against government, a revolutionary, which Rome could not tolerate even for a moment if they wanted to maintain peace. So, to sum all that up, here's what Ron Ryder said. It's pretty simple. A yes answer would antagonize the people and discredit him as God's spokesman. No messianic claimant could sanction willing submission to pagan rulers. He's the Messiah. If He is, then He certainly isn't going to tell us to bow under the authority of these godless, disgusting, vile, and all of these words because they worshipped other gods. He's not going to tell us to submit to them. Would He? A no answer would invite retaliation from Rome. So what's He going to do? What's Jesus going to do? Well, the question stands. Should we pay them or should we not? That's it. What are you going to say, Jesus? Look back at the text. Verse 15, chapter 12. 
But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a Daenerys and let me look at it. And they brought one. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. Now, I can only imagine the tension. you got to understand, this was a hot topic. You see this sometimes in our own political circles, right? There's a certain questions they're put out by the press and you can, the, the candidate who's running for president, everyone's just waiting. How's he going to answer? Because if he answers this way, we'll crucify him. If he answers this way, we will adore him. In the same way, they're saying, what's he going to say? And Jesus says, hey guys, go get me a coin. The denarius, the coin that's used to pay this census, this tax. And then he asked them about the identity of the image and the writing on the coin. Strange? They say, Caesar! Whose image is this? Whose likeness is this? Caesar! Well, this is important. Caesar was a title taken by the emperors of Rome. It's just a title. So think of it as Lord, King. And it began with Caesar Augustus. He was the Caesar. Now, on that coin, it was likely the image of his son Tiberius because he was ruling and reigning at that time. On one side of the coin, you can pop up that picture. This is a drawing of what it might have looked like. On one side of the coin, that's Latin running around in words. The words on this front side would have been Tiberius Caesar Augustus, the son of the divine Augustus, divine Augustus. And on the other side would have been the word chief or highest priest. Chief or highest priest. Now the inscription on the coin revealed two things. One, the Romans, besides worshiping other gods, practiced emperor worship. Emperor worship. They viewed Tiberius as the semi-divine son of God, the God, Augustus. They actually attributed to him divine qualities and characteristics. They worshipped him as not just a man, but a God-man. And so his son, Tiberius, would have been semi-divine. And that's why the coin says, the son of the divine Augustus. So that's problematic. It also revealed that the coin belonged to, in a very real sense, Caesar. It belonged to Caesar. And it was ultimately Caesar's coin because he produced them. His image is on them. That's what verifies that. That's why Jesus is asking the question, whose image is this? Whose image is this? The coin that was minted by the emperor, this is something you need to know, and had his image stamped on it, was considered to be his personal property even though it remained in circulation. Okay? So he minted it. It's got his face on it, his name on it. It's his coin. It belongs to him. Now, so what? Did Jesus request the coin because he was stalling? You know, just to buy a little more time to try to figure out how to answer the question? We do this. We go, could you repeat the question? That's what I would have done. And after five times, I would have ran away because I don't know what to say. But he's not stalling. He's not stalling. He has a purpose. Go get the coin. Whose image is on the coin? He's going to use this coin as an illustration, as a, as a mechanism to explain the answer that he's about to give, which shocked those who were listening. And here it is. He says, this image is Caesar's? This is Caesar's coin. Okay. You want to know what to do? Chapter 12, verse 17. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. And that actually brings us to our first point. Render to government. Render to government. The word translated render in the ESV, the translation we use here, means to pay. To pay. And it implies a payment of an incurred obligation. Or to say it another way, pay what you owe. Pay what you owe. 
render to Caesar. In fact, more literally, you could read it this way. The things of Caesar, give back to Caesar. What things? Well, this helped me, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read a couple of these things to you, and hopefully one of them will make sense. That coin represented the things that are Caesar's, the rights and duties belonging to the realm of human government. In daily life, they, the people, reaped the benefits of the controlling government that that coin represented. They therefore had the duty to render to Caesar or to pay back as a debt the things that belong to Caesar. In fact, the use of the coin proclaimed the obligation to the government that it represented. If that wasn't helpful, let's try another one. The acceptance and usage of Caesar's coinage implicitly acknowledged his authority and therefore their obligation to pay the tax. The image and inscription demonstrated the right of the sovereign, the one who was ruling and reigning, who coined the money to demand tribute as a sign of submission from those living in Rome's territory. In keeping with the common understanding that the emperor owned the coins which bore his image. Let's try another one. To use Caesar's coinage was to acknowledge his authority and the benefits of the civil government it represented and consequently any obligation to pay taxes. So Jesus declared, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. This tax was a debt they owed to Caesar for the use of his money and the other benefits of his rule. And finally, if that wasn't clear enough, Jesus was not evading the issue, but he was clearly saying, yes, pay the tax. Honoring God does not mean dishonoring the emperor by refusing to pay for the privileges, a respectfully orderly society, police protection, good roads, courts, etc., etc., that one enjoys in said government. See, the government may have had issues, but they were still a government and they provided many things and many benefits to the people. The bottom line is the Jewish people thought they shouldn't have to submit to the pagan foreign rulers in paying this tax, but Jesus gave no support for not paying the tax, but rather insisted that they did. So if you're someone who doesn't believe we should have to pay taxes, you'll have to find your argument some other place. You won't find it here. Now, because you guys got real serious on me when we got here. So I'm not even going to try to make application of this passage to our current government or tax system. I'm not going to try to do that. I'll let you do that on your own. And this doesn't mean that taxes are all good or right, certainly. But, as I said, the idea that you don't have to pay taxes because maybe the government that you're paying taxes to is corrupt or evil or whatever you want to say is just simply not supported through Scripture. In fact, this government did not worship God and they were not secular, they were religious. And they worshipped all types of gods and yet Jesus is still saying, render to Caesar what is Caesar. Caesar's. And I would invite you to look up a couple other passages, if this is not clear enough for you, where the Apostle Paul says directly, pay your taxes. Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 7. Look that up on your own. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 through 17. You can see the issue of submission to government. And by the way, both Romans and 1 Peter, as we talked about this morning from 1 Timothy, these were written to the people when Nero was ruling and reigning on the throne. And if you don't know who Nero is, go look him up too. He eventually murdered Christians. He would light them on fire to light his roads at night. That was just one of the wonderful things this man did. And it was to this man that the apostles said, submit to government. 
Wow. Now, you can work through all that stuff. The truth here is, and I, I would expect that they were hoping he would say, we don't have to pay it. He didn't. The truth is, we get all excited about taxes and government, right? Man, we get riled up. In fact, I've never seen so much energy. If we took the type of energy that we pour into politics and put it into the gospel, maybe we'd make a difference. Maybe we'd make a difference. And I'm not saying one's not important. But we're limited on our time and our energy and our focus. And this is one of those areas that quickly takes us off our main goal in life. So where was I? We get excited. But there is something way more important because that wasn't the end of Jesus' statement, right? He didn't finish there. He didn't say, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Bye. He had another part of the statement, beloved. Look back at the text. Mark chapter 12, verse 17. He said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled. They marveled. They were amazed. They didn't know what to do with what he just said. Now this is where I... This is the preaching time right here. This is where it gets interesting because I'm done talking about taxes. I'm telling you. I am done. I need to give back to God the things that are God's or I need to pay Him what is owed. Well, how do I know what is His? It is worth noting here that the word likeness that is used in this text when Jesus says, whose likeness, whose image, the New King James Version translates the word, whose image, whose likeness is on this coin. It is the same Greek word that is used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. It's called the Septuagint. And in Genesis 1.26, it is used this way. Then God said, let us make man in our image. Our image. Stay with me. Now, Without getting into all that that means, let me just say, like a mirror reflects our image, we were created to mirror or reflect the very image of God. Not His physical appearance, right? Because He is a spirit, John 4, 24. He does not have a physical body. But we were made and created to reflect His glorious characteristics such as love, Holiness, righteousness, justice, kindness, mercy, goodness, faithfulness, etc. God's image, beloved, has been permanently stamped on every human being. Now, this image has been distorted by sin. Okay? All of those wonderful things that we should have been reflecting have been twisted and corrupted, perverted by the nature of sin in our lives. But that doesn't remove the stamp. It doesn't remove it. So what is the point? An early church father, his name was Tertullian. He lived from A.D. 160 to 222, not long after Christ's existence. In fact, he was the first one to introduce the word trinity to the Christian faith. Looking at this passage, here's how he interpreted Mark in this section of Scripture. Quote, Render unto Caesar the image of Caesar, which is on the money, and unto God the image of God, which is in man, so that thou givest unto Caesar money, unto God thine own self. Picking up on this idea, many modern day commentators agree and have some good things to say. Listen to this. Coins have the image of a ruler and they may be returned to him. Human beings are made in the image of God. They and all they have 
belong to him. Or another one. I like this. People are God's coinage. That's cool. You get it? People are God's coinage because they bear his image. And they owe him what belongs to him. Their allegiance. This, not the poll tax, was the crucial issue for Jesus. You know, the other thing that this does is it establishes the limits of humanity's obligations to government. Well, what do you mean? Well, they might be entitled to our money, but they are never entitled to my worship. That is to be reserved for God alone. And that's important because Rome would have desired it. They would have had everyone bow down to Caesar as the great divine. But here Jesus sets up a limit. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar. Give him back his money. But you render to God the things that are God. Don't you dare worship them. In fact, that belongs to God alone. And our obligation to God then does not necessarily remove our duty to human government. Even imperfect ones. Now, think about this. The people were so frustrated about this government tax and whether or not they were obligated to pay it. But the more pressing and important issue was their obligation to God to render to Him what was rightfully His. Which, beloved, was not just a denarius. They're all worked up about a denarius, a day's wage. But God is, Christ here is calling on them to something way big. Something way more significant than a lousy denarius. God has stamped His very image on you. And because of that, He owns you. And because of that, you owe Him your very lives. Your absolute allegiance. That's what you guys need to wake up and realize. So frustrated about a silly tax. The sad thing, beloved, in the setting, if you remember, is that the religious leaders were plotting to destroy the very Son of God. Right? That's who's there. That's who has come and questioned Him. And the joke of it all is they were reluctantly paying that tax. Okay? They were upset about it, but they were paying it. You know why? Because they were afraid of what Rome would do to them if they didn't pay the tax. But the reality was they were withholding what they owed to God. That is their faithfulness and their loyalty to Him. So think of this. They feared Rome, but they didn't fear God. Because if they did, then they would have given Him their allegiance. And we know they weren't doing that because they were attempting to kill the very Son that He sent to them. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar and to God the things that are God's. And as I said before, if we spend as much time thinking and talking about our obligations to God as we do thinking and talking about what our obligations should or shouldn't be to the government, you know what? We would be a lot better off. And our lives would bring more credit and honor and glory to God. By the way, a couple other things I just thought about when I was thinking through this text. Allegiance to God. Demands submission to His Son. Just so we can be real clear. Render to God the things that are God. That means give Him your absolute allegiance. Just as you would Caesar. Pay what is His. Give it to Him. It's His coin. Give it back. Your life has been stamped with the image of God. You owe it to Him. Give it to Him. That requires that you submit to His Son. If we are not surrendering our lives to Jesus Christ, then we are not rendering to God the things that are God's. You can't claim to be giving your loyalty to God and at the same time dishonor His Son. You can't. It doesn't make sense. 
God doesn't accept it. And in fact, Jesus says those very words in John chapter 5, verse 23. He says, Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. This is why we lift Jesus up. Because we're crazy. We think and really believe that the only way to honor God, the only way to God, is through His Son, Jesus Christ. There is no other way. There is no other way. Well, I'm out of time. So, one way we honor God, one way we render to God the things that are God's is by honoring His Son, as I said, and we do that when we celebrate communion. Communion. So in a moment here, the ushers will come forward, they'll pass the elements. Let me say a, a few things about communion, and then I'll pray. The elements will be passed. We ask that if you take, that you just wait. So we partake together at the very end. When we partake of this meal, by the way, this was a meal, Passover meal, on the eve of Jesus' death, He took the bread, represented by those crackers there. He took the wine, represented by the juice and the cups. And He symbolized them. He transformed this meal into a memorial meal. Into something that they would remember long after He died, over and over and over again. They would partake of this meal. And as they did, and they took that bread, the bread would symbolize His body that was being offered up for them the next day on the cross. He then took the cup And said that symbolized the blood that he would spill, his life taken from him, a reference to his death that would take place the next day on the cross. All of this on their behalf for their sin. And so when we come together and celebrate this meal, we are memorializing, we are celebrating Jesus Christ's death on our behalf. That's what we're doing. In fact, the text simply says this in 1 Corinthians 11.26, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim, you declare, you preach. That's what that word means. The Lord's death until He comes. Very strange, don't you think? A bunch of group of people, they get around and they celebrate death. Huh? A little strange? Yeah unless you understand what that death means. See, we celebrate the death of Christ this morning because it is through His death alone that we can be saved from the wrath to come. It is through His death alone that we have the hope of salvation, that we know, regardless of what this world does with all of its government and laws and all of that, we know that there is a new day coming and we will be part of that day when the righteous King comes and establishes His perfect government. I just got to go back for a second. You know, I think, I think honestly, this is part of the problem. We are so focused on the here and now. So focused. And if we're thinking that we are going to get a perfect government in this life, That is a fool's errand. That is a huge waste of time. I don't care who you have in there. Even if it's a woman. That was for you ladies. I've heard that. Man, you put a woman in there, this would solve everything. That sounds nice. But she's still a sinner? And she's got a Congress and a Senate to deal with? Beloved, there is no perfect government. But foolishly, we think... Hey, listen, I'm going to get my perfect world here and now. You're not. That doesn't mean we don't stand for righteousness. It doesn't mean we don't vote. It doesn't mean we don't have a say politically. But that's not where my hope is. So here's what I'm thinking. This is what I'm thinking when I see all that stuff. I've said this before. I'm thinking about the kingdom to come. I'm thinking about that righteous rule that will happen when Jesus is established on His throne. Okay? And I know I'm going. I'm a citizen. 
So now my obligation, my duty, if I'm going to render to God the things that are God's, is to get as many people as I possibly can to go with me. That's it. Listen, if I spent my whole life in politics and somehow made a bunch of good laws, but I never told a person about Jesus Christ, so they were not prepared for the wrath to come, what good is that? What good is that, beloved? So, we celebrate this meal. For those who know Jesus Christ, we want you to partake. It's for you. You're proclaiming His death. You're proclaiming the reality that this messed up world will not be the case forever. You know, you can have fun. There are good things that happen in this world. But this is not it. Because there's a lot of sorrow, a lot of pain, a lot of injustice, a lot of messed up governments. And too much taxation. Listen, we celebrate that, but if you don't know Jesus Christ, if you don't know Him, the meal's not for you. That's all. Don't partake. If you're not sure, don't partake. Don't treat this lightly. This is you identifying with the body of Christ. You're saying, I am His. He's mine. He's coming to get me. If you want to know how to have that relationship with Jesus Christ, if you want to know for sure that when this world is over, you will be in the kingdom to come, we would love to tell you. We would love to tell you. And I don't want to assume for even two seconds that all of you know Jesus Christ. In fact, I guarantee that's not the case. And I'm not talking about you know about Him. You read him in a history book or you read him in the Bible. I'm talking about you know you have a relationship with this Lord of the universe. You have given your life to him. You have turned from wickedness and turned to Christ. You have placed your faith completely and totally in his work on the cross, not your pathetic or my pathetic efforts of righteousness. You want to know that? We want to tell you. We don't even want you to leave here, beloved. We don't want you to leave here without making sure you've got that straight. So after the service, there'll be a couple of guys by that back door. Go to them. Go to them. And then next time when we celebrate communion, you can join in with us. You can have a party with us. But if you don't know Jesus Christ, beloved, you remain under the wrath of God. And if you were to die even this very day, you would wake up in an existence that the Bible calls hell. A place that no human being should ever see. I'm going to pray for the communion. It will be passed around. Let's pray. Father God, I... I rejoice in the salvation that you have given me. A complete gift. I have not earned it, nor could I ever earn it. For I am a sinner. Born a sinner. And I have confirmed that position in growing up and sinning against the God who created me to bear his very image to reflect Him in all of His holiness and wonder and glory and instead I pervert it and twist it and distort that image in such an ugly way. And yet, Father, You reached out to me and I heard the truth of the Gospel through Your Word. The story that You sent Your only Son to come to this earth and as a man took upon Himself my sins, staying in my place on that cross, suffering the wrath of God that was due me. Unbelievable! And now if, if I would just place my faith, my trust, my hope in that Savior, if I would turn to Him and surrender my life, He would save me. He would call me His own. He would secure me in that salvation. He would change me 
He would transform me. He would remove me from the pit of darkness and the wickedness that I walked in and and transfer me into the, the realm of light and help me by the power of the Spirit that He implanted in me to walk in the ways of His righteousness that I might rightly reflect the very image of God that I have been stamped with. That is we're celebrating. And this morning we come together and we celebrate that those who have done that, we partake of this simple piece of cracker and this juice that represent our Lord and Savior. Father, Your Son, who was crucified, murdered, executed on a cross for our behalf. Father, we thank You for it. And we do proclaim Your death. And Father, I help or pray that You would help us to be serious about preaching and proclaiming and declaring that death, not just in this room, but in the rooms that we find ourselves in throughout the week, in our homes and in our friends' homes, in our relatives' homes, in our neighbors' homes, in our workplaces and in the marketplace. Father, that we would tell people there about this death. Because in the end, nothing else really matters. Father, we thank You for the celebration that this is. Help us to rejoice in it. Help us to be excited about it. And Father, help us to share the truth of it with those who are still under Your wrath. Father, who are not citizens of Your kingdom and who have no hope apart from that. In Jesus' name, Amen.